Good to be with all of you this morning. If I didn't get to meet you yet, my name is Kendall Age. I serve as the lead pastor here. Thank you for joining us this morning. We are in a series going through the book of Revelation. And so if this is your first morning, I've just got to warn you that the entry ramp is short. We're going to get on the highway in the book of Revelation. All right? So open up your Bible, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2, where we will be spending our time this morning. Well, it is amazing to me that Easter is only two weeks away. Like, when, when did that happen? Time is flying as usual, and as usual, I'm not keeping up. As usual, I'm surprised at how quick time is going. But in just two weeks, we will be gathered here to celebrate the fact that Christ has risen. And if you have been to an Easter service, then you are used to the reality that someone will say, He is risen, and everybody else will say, He is risen indeed. That's right. I look forward to celebrating that with you. There are, in fact, two phrases, I think, that Christians have used for hundreds of years, even thousands of years, different languages at different times and different cultures. One is, He is risen. He died and He came back to life. Our Lord is risen. And the second is, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. He is King and Sovereign and Ruler and Master. These are basic declarations of the Christian faith. The question that comes to us this morning then should be rather easy, should be rather basic, and I suspect it will be neither. The question is this, is Jesus Lord? Has He truly risen? Is He, is he Lord like actually in charge? Actually overseeing the details of all of life? Totally sovereign? Such that we can trust Him in whatever we face? Has He really risen? Such that no matter what happens in life or in death, our hope is unmovable? Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is addressing the, the seven churches. Seven churches that originally were on the west coast of Turkey. But he's not just addressing those churches. He's addressing all of his churches, including this church this morning through his word. And so, let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 
Father, would you give us ears to hear what the Spirit says through your word this morning. Amen. In verse 8, Christ identifies himself as the one speaking, as the one addressing his church, and he uses two titles for himself there. And the first is, he says, these are the words of the first and the last. These are the words of him who was before all things and who comes after all things. The one who is before history and during history and after history. He's above all things and below all things and through all things. These are words of sovereignty. These are words of, of the Lord of history is speaking. In fact, we could, we could summarize it and say that Jesus is claiming to be Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that's how he identifies himself as the first and the last. And then, his second way that he identifies himself is who died and came to life. So it's clear that it is Christ speaking, the, the very same who, who died upon the cross, taking the sin of his people, being buried in the grave, and who then came back to life beyond the grave. He is risen. Jesus is Lord, first and the last. And he is risen. He is risen indeed. The one who came back to life. Could there be anything more basic then to Christians? Why would Christ use a title, use two titles, which for us have been so used that we could feel that they're overused. They've almost lost their meaning. We hardly give a thought to these sayings. Because he would have us give a thought to these sayings. We're going to need to know this about Jesus as he leads us through the rest of what he has to say. These words don't make sense unless, in fact, Jesus is Lord and he is risen. Because he's writing to a church in the midst of suffering and in the midst of persecution. So, what does suffering look like here? What does suffering look like? Well, in the case of Smyrna, this town, the Christians there were a repressed, a an oppressed religious minority. The city of Smyrna loved Rome. They were big fans of the Roman Empire. And they expressed it as big fans of the Roman Empire tended to do through worshiping Caesar. So it wasn't, it's kind of patriotism. There's nothing wrong with patriotism in and of itself. But this was a, an idolatrous patriotism. A patriotism with idolatry associated. So in order then to be patriotic, you had to worship Caesar. So there was a temple built in the city to Caesar. And they would go and they would offer animal sacrifices to Caesar and Smyrna was really proud of this temple because they had competed with ten other cities to get the temple to Caesar, and they got it. Like, cities compete for the Olympic Games, you know? They competed to see who could worship Caesar, and they won. So that's what everybody did. And when you gave your offering to Caesar, here's what you would declare. Caesar is Lord. 
Why would anyone hesitate? The empire had brought peace and prosperity to them. Life was good. The whole city was full of a patriotic fervor. The worship of Caesar was just part of what it meant to be a good citizen. They were united in zeal for this. Caesar is Lord. The city was known for its industry back in the day of, of kind of guilds where there were different groups that really specialized in different things. Wool and dye making and blacksmithing and those kind of things were organized into guilds and they produced, and what they produced was shipped all over the Roman Empire. Their goods were known all over the place. The guilds, the trade guilds, were the backbone of the community. There were, there were good jobs with high-paying wages to provide for families. If you wanted to be a member of one of those guilds, you better bring your skill. Because you had to be good to be a member of those guilds in Smyrna. And you better bring your offering. Because you also had to bow the knee to Caesar. And demonstrate that you were a good Roman. In order to be a member of the guild. Well you can imagine how this played out. Christian fathers. Men who had perhaps just come to Christ in the last couple years. Increasingly pushed to the margins of society. Ostracized by friends. Because they weren't patriotic, pushed to the edges, pushed to the edges, and then finally with the new law, you have to, you have to give an offering to Caesar and proclaim him Lord to be a member of the guild. They had mouths to feed, kids to provide for, wives to provide for, Christian fathers, but they were Christian fathers. They couldn't bow the knee to Caesar. And so, they got pushed out of the guilds, which meant they couldn't get hired. So the economic condition for the Christians in Smyrna just deteriorated rapidly. And they found themselves in utter poverty. Which is why in verse 9, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. They were impoverished because they were faithful to Jesus. But he continues, and I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Jews had a, a unique place in Roman society because they were a, you know, thousands of years old religion. When, when the Jewish people were conquered by the Romans, the Romans gave them special permission. They could continue to worship their God. So Jews did not have to worship Caesar, and they were still thought of as good Romans. So they, they were a recognized and protected religious minority. And for a while, the Christians kind of rode those coattails. Because the first Christians were Jewish. And so, oh, it's just a different sect of Judaism. So, you know, we can tolerate them as well. But the Jews in Smyrna made sure that would not happen. And they, they made the distinction. These are not Jews. These are Christians. And by the way, leadership... They're unpatriotic. They want to change our way of life. They're encouraging everybody not to worship Caesar. They, they, they hate the Roman Empire that we're all a part of. And they slandered the Christians. Persecution happens 
after the lies have already begun. Lying always comes with persecution. Christ knows all this, and so he begins to speak words to them that tell of more to come. Verse 10. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You may be tested. It hadn't come to that yet. It had been social isolation, economically being pushed out. Hadn't come to prison. It's going to come to prison. And then in, later in verse 10, he says, Be faithful unto death. Martyrdom was at the door and was starting to knock. And Jesus knew that this was coming. He could see this coming. And so mothers and fathers had some decisions to make. How important is it that we follow Jesus again? Who's going to raise our kids? Who's going to feed our kids? Who's going to provide for the family? Don't pretend you wouldn't have the same questions. These are hard, hard questions to face. That's the suffering that they faced and that Christians at different times and places have faced. But what is the threat that they are facing? Yes, in Smyrna, but, but to all Christians. When, when persecution comes... What is the threat that Christians face? Because I don't mean what we just saw. What we just saw, the social isolation, the economic deprivation, the slander, the imprisonment, the death. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a deeper danger. What's the danger that Christ is addressing? Because to be frank, he's not addressing that one. He's addressing something worse. What's the deeper danger? We get a hint of it by seeing first the activity of Satan himself. In this passage, very often the father of lies stays hidden behind the scenes. Jesus calls him out and reveals him, first with the slander going on of the Jews when he says that they are not Jews, they are a synagogue of Satan. That is a powerful picture. They were gathered thinking they were gathered in the name of the Lord, but they were doing the work of the enemy. And then, later, he tells them that they're about to be thrown in prison. Well, who's going to throw them in prison? He doesn't point to the Jews as those that are going to throw them in prison. It's not the Smyrnans. It's not the Romans. It's the devil. The devil is going to throw them in prison. So there's more here than meets the eye. This is a satanic attack against the church. And the threat of persecution is far more than what first appears on the surface. It's not the social isolation. It's not the economics. It's not the prison. It's not the death. The threat is that in the threat of all that, they would falter. That they would turn from Jesus. That they would renounce Christ. That they would become so afraid of suffering. That they're going to just start thinking, how do we get out of this suffering? What do I need to say? What do I need to do? What compromise can I make? Apostasy is the threat they're facing. 
And that is an eternal threat. It could not be bigger. It's impossible. It could not be bigger than the threat that is knocking at their door. And so Jesus is preparing them for that threat. That's the one. And he gives them two commands. He gives us two commands. Two commands to equip us. And the first, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Do not worry. I want you to understand this is a command. Before you tell me I can't do it, before you tell me how does anyone do that, before you tell me that in the face of suffering it's impossible not to fear, I want you to understand the word of command from the Lord. That He calls us and commands us, do not fear. Understand that apostasy, that turning from Christ, that renouncing the faith, that, that giving in under the pressure. Understand what drives that train. I'll tell you what it is. It's fear. Fear drives the train. Gets you anxious. Gets you moving. Gets you thinking. How much compromise is okay? Come on. There's got to be a little bit. Can I give a little ground? Where's the middle ground? Like, can I just bow on the outside, but not on the inside? Say the words, but not mean them? Sin a little? Ask for forgiveness? What can I do to get through this? Fear's driving those thoughts. Do not fear. Second command. End of verse 10. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful. Stand. Don't turn. Don't give up. Don't compromise. Don't give away your faith. Trust me and stand. Be faithful. Here's how you avoid the danger that's coming at you, church. Be faithful. That's how you avoid it. Be faithful. Stand. Here's how you win. Here's how you defeat the work of Satan. Be faithful. And, if necessary, be faithful unto death. Now, he's not saying that all the Christians in Smyrna are going to be put to death. No. Some will. Most won't. But when persecution comes, you don't know which of those you're going to be. The shadow hangs over the whole community. The threat hangs over the whole community. So every person following Christ has that choice to make inside. Will I stand? Or will I compromise? And so he says to all of us, do not fear. Be faithful. Now, if you're like me, you agree with those commands. Because you see them right here. <laughs> yep, that is what he says. I see that. Okay. How? How? How do we, how do we follow Christ into persecution? How do we follow him through trials and tribulation, even just difficulties? How do I follow him and stay faithful and not fear? I am not strong enough. They must make Christians differently today than they used to. 
because I am not strong enough for this. Friend, you are right. You are not. So let's just stop going down that trail because that is true. We are not strong enough for this. The solution here is not to look for the solution in us. To look for the strength in us. To look for the courage in us. We must look elsewhere, and that's exactly what Christ encourages us to do here. And believe it or not, in these four, four short verses, he gives us five encouragements we can't miss as we're going through this. Two of them we've already covered, but perhaps we haven't applied them yet. And they are the words that he used to identify himself at the beginning of the passage. The words he uses to identify himself are important because they, they undergird the whole message that he's about to say. And remember, he calls himself the first and the last. He is before, during, and after all of history. Jesus is Lord. Suffering looks out of control. Suffering does not look like Jesus is Lord. Persecution looks like the church is losing. Persecution and the church is on the run. Doesn't look like Jesus is king. Church being hunted house to house and families being torn apart and poverty and martyrdom. And let me ask you again, is he Lord? And then he, he says he's the one who died and came to life. Is he risen? Did he really come back from the grave? Because if he did, that means that death is not the end. If he came back from the grave, that means there's hope beyond the grave. If he came back, that means our hope doesn't have to be in this world. If he came back, it means death is the door to eternity. If he came back. So is he risen? Friend, I know you can declare that you're going to do it in two weeks. I know you can say it then. we got to know this to be true. we got to know this is Jesus Lord and has Jesus risen? Verse 10, our third encouragement that he gives us. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. 10 days. He says this in keeping with the book of Revelation. Numbers are used symbolically. So this doesn't mean that every time anyone ever faces persecution it will only last 10 days what it means instead is that every time anyone ever faces persecution the Lord knows the time and the Lord sets the boundaries on the time the time is real and it might be even prolonged 10 days is not one day but it will not go to day 11 he sets the boundaries on persecution Christ limits the duration. In other words, persecution is temporary. It will not last. It cannot last because guess what? Caesar is in fact not Lord. Despite all his power and pomp and visibility, there is one who is Lord. And he sets the boundaries on human events. Fourth encouragement. End of verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you 
the crown of life. Uh, picture there, the crown of life. Another symbolic thing, but what was it symbolic of? This refers back to the games that they would have and competition, and the, the winner gets a, a crown. This is a, a victor's crown that the Lord is promising. It's a, it's a picture of victory, of winning. And it's a, it's a crown of, of life. You win eternal life. He promises eternal life for those who conquer, for those who are victorious. Death does not look victorious. It looks like defeat. As Christians get martyred and their enemies laugh, it looks like defeat. Death in the line of duty. Death for the sake of Christ. Death for the cause of Jesus. Looks like defeat, but he declares it's the ultimate victory because he gives a crown of life to those who do it. Did not his death on the cross look like defeat? Who are we? Are we not Christians who follow Christ whose death was ignominious? Did I say that right? Ignominious? You know what I mean. It looked like defeat. And it was total and complete and 100% and world-changing victory. Colossians 2.15 Describing the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Jesus was triumphing on the cross. And it was because He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that God has highly exalted Him and given Him the name that is above every name. So Jesus shows us that that kind of death is victory. And the crown of life awaits those faithful unto death. And it will be given by Jesus. I will give you the crown of life, says the Lord of history, says the one who's risen. Fifth and final encouragement comes in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death, that is how the book of Revelation refers to final judgment and, and the final state after judgment of an eternity in hell away from the benevolent presence of God and terrifyingly still in the wrathful presence of God. It is eternal. It is conscious. It is unending and unrelieved and unimaginable torment. That is the second death. And friends, the second death is worse than the first one. They are not worthy to compare with each other. The, the first death for the believer is the gateway to eternity. The second death is for all eternity. The first death lasts for a moment. The second death never ends. And what he, what he promises is that those who conquer will not be hurt by the second death. Now I want to address some theological questions that you may have. 
are you saying that if someone turns from Christ in the middle of persecution, that there's, there's no way for them to repent? Can't God forgive someone who turns their back on Jesus during a great struggle like this? It's understandable that they would, and then they, they turn around and they repent. Can't, can't you just bow the knee on the, on the outside and not mean it on the inside? Can't you just say the words? They're just words, right? Like, isn't, isn't Christianity a, a religion of the heart? Let us not play games, church. Christ is speaking here. Let His words be our guide. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That's the road He lays out. That's the path that He calls us to. That's what faith looks like. Same thing in verse 10. Who gets the crown of life? The one who's faithful unto death is given the crown of life. Don't imagine another way. This, these are the words of our Savior. Another way. Oh, maybe I can save my skin and then ask for forgiveness. It's all of grace. It's not Jesus talking. Those are false promises. Beware of such promises. We have good promises right in front of us. Let's believe those promises, friends. These are good promises. These are great, great promises. He says to us, do not fear. Be faithful. Listen, on days of persecution, we're going to need some really simple guidance to hold on to. And we're going to tend to want to complicate it in our fear and find other alternative, third way kind of paths. And the Lord is keeping it very simple for us. And this is true on a day of persecution. It's true on a day of, of struggle and trial outside of persecution. It's true on a day of, of disease and difficulty that you're going to have to face. We need simple words, not complex theories. Here is simplicity. I am trustworthy, so do not fear. That is a word to the church. Trustworthy, do not fear. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. Conquer by your death if necessary. And you will not be hurt by the second death. These are good promises. These are sufficient promises. These are all we need promises. Let's cling to these promises that He has given us. And so, we're going to end this morning like we began. Just two weeks till Easter. And we will declare together, He has risen. He has risen indeed. Has He? Is He really and truly back from the place that none of us have ever seen anyone come back from? Is He really and truly back from the dead? Because if He is, then we can trust Him in all of life and even unto death. And is He Lord? Is He is he really and truly? Is he sovereign? Is he in control? Does he have a plan? I'm not asking, do you understand his plan? I'm saying, does he have a plan? And can you trust him with his plan? Because he's Lord and we're not. Listen, if, if he's Lord, he's worthy of lifelong worship. If he's, if he's Lord, then we can bow the knee to nobody but him. If he's Lord, we can trust him. His promises are true. His words are trustworthy. And friend, I'm here to tell you, there's no ifs to these things. He is Lord. 
and He is risen. So we may trust Him. And so, the call this morning is not really get ready for persecution. Be stronger. Get to worrying about the possibilities of persecution. I'll tell you what. Get to worrying about the way you see our culture going. The way you see our country going. The way you see the West going. Spend lots of time focused on all of that. And stirring up anxiety and fear and worry. The call this morning is not to do that. The call this morning is to do the opposite of that. Because the call is, do not fear! So, friends, fear drives unfaithfulness. Do not fear. You can practice today. Do not fear. He's trustworthy today. We're not in persecution yet, Ken. Praise the Lord for that. Let's practice trusting Him today. How about that? Let's trust Him with what He gives us today. I'll tell you what, He's given you enough grace for today. You can trust Him today. He will meet you today. But here's what He won't do. He will not give you grace today for tomorrow's problems. Ever. As soon as you start thinking about tomorrow's problems, envisioning the future, right? you know, you know what's not in that vision? God. Not in that vision. You know what He's not giving you today? Grace for those problems that you're, you're pulling from tomorrow into today. You, you don't get grace for those things. So the, the point is not that we start fixating on the possibility of oncoming persecution. The more we do that, we kind of start taking on to ourselves things that belong to Him. We're worrying about things that are God's level. You know what? As you're worrying about things that are God's level, you're probably not doing the things that are your level. It's distracting. It pulls us away from everyday faithfulness. So, it's not a call that we would look to the culture and analyze what's going on. It's not a call that we look to ourselves and try to be strong. The call, clear call, is that we would look closely to Jesus. He is the one who's the first and the last. And we need Him, don't we? He is the one who died and is risen and we're going to need to depend on Him. So, let's depend on Him today. Let's look to Him today. He will give you what you need today as we look to Him today. And He will do that today as long as it's called today. There will always be enough grace every day that's called today. How's that for good news? Do you know what that means? (laughs) It means, dear friend, if He calls you to suffer... He will meet you in suffering. He will be there. That is my only hope. That is your only hope. Is He not Lord? Has He not risen? He has. The church, let's look to Him, and then look to Him, and then look to Him, and then look to Him. And the risen one, who is Lord, made such promises as this. What? Have we to fear? Worship team, come on up. Let's close our time by worshiping. Church, stand together.
Lord, it seems to us a, a hard word that warns of suffering and says don't fear. Lord, help us, help us hear the word and remember who's talking. Help us, Lord. I, I pray for each one here. Lord, you know we are sheep. We tremble at the slightest thing. Oh, good shepherd, keep us near to your voice that we would look to you and look to you and look to you, that we would help each other look to you and that you would give all the grace for all that we need each day as we follow you. Receive our praise now. Pray in your name.